the Brown Pundits Browncast. Hey everybody, I am here with the Brown Pundits Podcast and I have a very special, very special guest, uh, Vaghish Narasimhan, who is a geneticist in David Reich's lab at Harvard. Um, and he is, um, you know, pretty well known now in the world of South Asian genetics uh, for a couple uh, for a couple of papers he's on. One of them is a first author paper in science on, um, you know, I'll, I'll push the links in the show notes, but basically it's about Indian genetics using angel samples. And then he's on another paper as a second author, uh, the famous Rocky Hari genome paper. And this has been, people have been waiting on this for, I don't know, since 2016, I've been hearing about this. So it's great that it's finally out. And, uh, you know, hopefully Vagish will give us some insights uh, about like, you know, how the, how the sausage was made and just to clarify some questions that I, I'm going to put out there for readers. Vagish, could you introduce yourself to the listener really quickly? Yeah, sure. First of all, thanks for having me, Razib. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and speak to you particularly. Um so Razib wanted me to say a little bit about myself. So I'm a postdoc at Harvard Medical School with David Reich, and I've only been involved with ancient DNA for the past three years, actually. And prior to that, um, I worked on human medical genetics um, in the UK in Richard Durbin and Chris Tyler Smith's lab uh, at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute. And before that, I was uh, I studied at Harvard, um, and I was an engineer, and then also a statistician in the biostatistics department. Um, and I had a bit of time in between working in industry, uh, in the tech industry, uh, before I got back into genetics, and which is what I do now. Brown guy in tech. Wow, that's that's definitely someone who's not been on this podcast before. <laughs> well, not anymore. Uh, yeah. Tech, yeah. 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 But, um, okay. So like, I'm going to just like jump, actually, you know what? Can you give a one minute pressy of your findings of the findings of these two papers for the two listeners who don't know what they are? Yeah, sure. So these two papers are sort of complementary to each other. Um, the very, the first one in science, um, reported about 523 samples. It's the largest, single ancient DNA study ever reported. And it was designed to sort of close the gap in the availability of ancient DNA uh, in the parts of the world where we sequence samples from Central and South Asia. So about 80 to 90% of the total available ancient DNA data uh, today comes from Europe. And we have a little bit from Africa and the Americas, but very little from Central and South Asia. And so this paper was an effort to sort of bridge this gap and so we tried to understand two large-scale population transformations that occurred in Eurasia. The first is the spread of farming, and the second is the spread of Indo-European languages. And we wanted to understand what the role of population movement is as part of both of these processes. And we sequenced 500 samples or so from this part of the world to understand the dynamics of what's, happen what's happening east um, in the East as compared to what's happening uh, with population transformation in Europe. So that's the first paper. The second paper is sort of a technical achievement to obtain ancient DNA from lowland South, South Asia in the Bronze Age. So this has been a long running challenge for our lab to be able to do this. Uh, and we finally succeeded in being able to obtain DNA from a single sample and then subsequently do population genetics analysis on that sample. And this is a sample from the Indus Valley civilization um, for those of you who don't know, it's uh, a large, widespread Bronze Age civilization comparable in time and sort of its sophistication with that of the populations in the Near East, such as um, Egypt and Mesopotamia. 
And it's been a huge mystery about what the genetics uh, of that culture and civilization would look like and how they were related to modern day South Asians. Um, and so this paper sequenced one particular individual from that culture and related that uh, genetics of that individual to other individuals whom we sequenced in central as well as later periods of South Asia. So that's sort of the summary of what those papers are about. Yeah, I mean, you did a great job, man. You should uh, write your own press release. So I'm going to just jump to some questions um, yeah, and sure. I will probably jump in with my own questions because I've been known to have questions. But um, uh, so people have been asking about the Arula-like Rocky Gari male skeleton. Um, there's been a lot of talk about this. Uh, there was an earlier draft that was circulating. So what's going on with that? Can you talk about that? Well, so as far as we know, we've never circulated that draft uh, in public. Um, and we actually have released that particular sample uh, along with this uh, with this paper. So in this, the data for I-4411, which is the sample you're talking about and was reported in a newspaper article sometime maybe about a year ago, um, the data has actually been released. So it's available to analyze by anybody. It's extremely contaminated. Um, and even when damage restricted, uh, it appears to have additional contamination that we can't sort of disentangle. And so we're basically not using that data for any of the analysis that we're reporting in the paper. Yeah. And you kind of alluded to this on um, the interwebs. Uh, why are you convinced that this woman is mm -hmm. the real deal and there's no contamination? Because presumably there are brown people handling this. Oh, absolutely. So that's an excellent question. So one of the big reasons are that there's not a single person probably alive today with that particular ancestry type. So as I don't need to tell you, but I'm, I think it's useful to tell the, the listeners of the podcast that the South Asians today sit on, an, on a gradient of ancestry. And this gradient of ancestry um, connects East and West Eurasia. So our East and West Eurasia refers to the earliest split of ancestry as people left Africa and moved westward sort of towards Europe and eastward towards Asia. Um, and South Asians today sit on a gradient between East, and East, East Eurasian and West Eurasian type ancestry. And um, what's interesting about this sample is that it sits on an ancient gradient of ancestry that no longer exists in present day South Asia. And so if you look at the genetic ancestry of this person, um, you see that that particular sample has high proportions of Iranian farmer-related ancestry and much lower proportions of Andamanese hunter-gatherer-related ancestry. And such ancestry, with the absence of steppe pastoralist ancestry, is no longer present in South Asia today. So there's not a single person alive who could possibly contaminate that sample yielding genetic ancestry of that type. So that's a main reason why we think that the, the, the genetics of that sample is authentic. Secondly, it this sample doesn't sit by itself. We have 11 other samples um, in, another, in the other paper, which we hypothesize are from South Asia based on the genetics of that, of those 11 individuals, as well as the archeological um, artifacts that were associated with the burials of those people relating them to South Asia. And so this individual sits on a gradient that's established by those 11 individuals. So A, it's not possible to contaminate that individual in that manner. B, it sits on a gradient that's expected or hypothesized by 11 other samples. Um, 
And three, we heavily damage restrict uh, this individual. And so taken together, I think we have a really good idea that the genetics of that particular individual are real. And that's what we're observing and describing. Yeah, your papers, um, you know, there's a lot of great visualizations in your papers, which I love. Uh, you know, I love reading, uh, love reading the book you wrote, which you know, we've <laughs> joked about this, but I mean, it's a book. People have been at, so one of the questions was, uh, are you going to write a book? And my response was, he already wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe it's not as palatable uh, for the general reader, but I mean, it's a pretty good book. Uh, I, so I have a question. So, you know, I made a joke uh, on the Twitter about how we all know Bengalis are off Klein, yeah. which unfortunately most people don't even know what that means, but I still think it's quite funny. And uh-huh. there's, there's some other people. Uh, oh, by the way, do you know who Nick Crawford is? No. He did um, the pigmentation paper uh in sarah tishkoff's lab a couple of years ago about african pigmentation and yeah, selection do you remember I that remember. yeah so now yeah he, um, he also is a novelist and uh oh. he has a different name when he's a novelist and he's actually writing a novel about ancient dna uh-huh. and um just genomics and just kind of like the whole cambridge scene and uh anyway you know he takes like some real people in there and i've read a couple of chapters and i have to say he put in jokes in there that like 30 people in the world would understand. <laughs> you know, like, like okay, like you've met David Reich and Ian Matheson and you know what an F4 statistic is. You'll get that joke. <laughs> <laughs> so, which is like totally unrelated to the comp- the podcast, but um, I'm going to interview him actually at some point when it, it's accepted for draft or whatever. It's going to be, I think it's going to be really like wild in the, um, you know, population genomics community of, 500 individuals you know yeah, so, I really <laughs> like laughing at all these inside jokes yeah um, but um so you know you just refer to the ibc klein basically so this is the klein of ancestry of uh, you know andamanese related hunter-gatherer ancestry at one end and then you have something iranian farmer like at the mm, other end that's right um, and so um basically you know you have another klein with the step klein and one of the questions from jai deep singh rathod is uh-huh. um, how confident are you with your sampling that, uh, from Shari Sokta uh, mm-hmm. that you're actually sampling the diversity of Harappas? Like, could there be other types of people or people that are 100% Iranian farmer in large groups, this sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, all we're documenting is that a gradient of ancestry exists somewhere in Bronze Age South Asia. They don't have to be directly related to the Indus Valley culture, though we have a single sample from that cultural time and period um, that sits on that gradient and it's not the extreme by any means. So that's the first thing. The second thing we know is that these samples form a source population for all later South Asians in a way populations from Central Asia and Eastern Iran do not. And so there, even though we haven't sampled every culture uh, from Bronze Age South Asia, all across South Asia and so on and so forth, we have a rough idea about the type of ancestry gradient that could exist there at that time. Um, and so it's, no, it's not really necessary to sort of associate them with the culture, but we can associate them with the time and place. And that's sort of what we've done in both of those papers. Yeah. And let me jump in here. And, you know, I think when I think of what you're doing with ancient DNA, um, I often think, uh, 
I've, I've often think like basically one individual is sampling this huge genealogy that goes into the past. And mm-hmm. so when people are saying, oh, there's like a dozen samples, like what can a dozen sample? You know, there are a dozen samples, but with genome-wide data, you are, you are sampling, you know, a lot of the population. Um, you know, a dozen samples can tell you, for, of just humans naively can tell you about some sort of out of Africa migration, even if you didn't know it was out of Africa, right? There's a lot of information there that's more than just the number of samples. And I think, I think people need to... Um, People need to like acknowledge that. I have a question for you. Um, so you said Eastern Iran, so I say Khorasan. So these individuals, the IBC ancestry is different from what you see in Eastern Iran from the ancient DNA. Like the Klein extends into geopolitical South Asia. Is yeah, that basically oh. right. Yeah. So, so probably, yeah, go on. So we have data from Turkmenistan as well as Shari Shokta, which is actually on the border of Balochistan and Iran, what is present-day Balochistan and Iran. And so both of these locations are sort of on the very peripheries of what we would call modern-day geopolitical South Asia. And these sites are special in, in, in this data set that we produced from Central and South Asia, at least in the Bronze Age, um, in the sense that they contain outlier individuals whom we linked to South Asia, both stylistically in terms of the art, archaeological um, artifacts these individuals were buried with, as well as their genetics, because they were outliers from the main cluster or main s- set of samples that we have from that part of the world. And we have about 200 or almost 150 individuals from that part of the world from that time. And they're outliers genetically in two ways. One is that they have... Um, this Andamanese hunter-gatherer related ancestry, which are proud, which are found in the majority of South Asians today, if not all South Asians today. Um, and the second is they contain very little to no Anatolian farmer ancestry, which is ubiquitous in Bronze Age and Copper Age uh, Iran, as well as um, Central Asia. And so Taken together, um, these suggest that these people are migrants to that part of the world. And we're sort of sampling them in these cities, which are on the peripheries of this, uh, of the South Asian, you know, penumbra. Yeah. So, I mean, basically, you know, there was this idea of ancestral North Indians that we had 10 years ago, thanks to the Reich Lab. Uh, Do you think in a way, like, it, I kind of feel in a way ancestral North Indians even though obviously we can talk about this later, they're a compound themselves, but this West Eurasian affinity, this like clade that dates to, and like Niraj Ryan in an interview recently said, like, you know, the divergence between the Western and Eastern Iranian hunter-gatherer types, you know, occurred 12,000, you know, BCE, I think. Is, is that about right? Like what's the confidence in or on the divergence of this uh, IBC Iranian-like component from say the, the Zagros North samples? Yeah, sure. So I'd like to, you know, maybe unpack a little bit about what Razib is saying here. So I did that analysis, actually, and it was sort of new because we are very good in ancient DNA telling apart ancestries that are highly divergent from each other. So, for example, the hunter-gatherers of Europe compared to the farmers of Anatolia and their mixing was one of uh, very easy to examine because these two ancestries were quite divergent from each other. Likewise, in South Asia, the East and West Eurasian components, so one related to Andamanese hunter-gatherers and one related to Iranian farmers, were likely 30 or 40,000 years diverged from each other. And so when the ancestries are that diverged, 
it's often easy to understand admixture and whether it's happening before or after a certain time period and detecting when that specifically happened. What we're not very good at is understanding um, how samples which are not very divergent um, are related with each other or whether or what or time periods in which they split. So an example would be the hunter-gatherers of Europe and their geograph and how they're geographically distributed um, all across Europe and and how that corresponds to the genetic differentiation or, or, or tree that connects, or the phylogeny that connects those various hunter-gatherers. I think no one has sort of investigated that. And we tried to do this using uh, technology that we've built in the lab called admixture graphs, where we can build a phylogeny or a tree or a graph, whatever you want to call it, of the various lineages leading um, to samples that we have in the ancient DNA record. So what we did here was that we sampled um, farming pop the earliest sort of farming populations of Western Iran, as well as Central Iran, along with hunter-gatherer populations from Central and Western Iran as well. And, and finally, to add to this set of samples, we also added uh, an individual from this Indus Valley gradient um, that we have and report in this paper. And what we see is that the the ancestry leading to the Indus Valley sample is the earliest diverging of all the Iranian farmer and hunter-gatherer lineages that we had. And, and we also had radiocarbon dates on all of those samples. And because we had the radiocarbon dates, we could determine at what point in time that divergence must have happened, because it must have happened prior to the ancestry of that particular individual, which was uh, when and that individual existed at a particular time period. And if we do that, then we get a, a split time estimate of 10,000 years. So we don't have a confidence interval per se. The confidence interval basically is the radiocarbon date confidence interval. But we do have a lower bound on when these lineages must have separated. Um, and so that's what we're trying to refer as a divergence time between the lineage that's found in South Asia and the lineage that's found um, in Western and Central Iran. Yeah, yeah. I mean... It's interesting because it's it's late Pleistocene, and I, I guess that makes a huge difference. You know, um, we've been getting into the weeds, which I want to get back into, but uh, just so that um, some of the Indian listeners in particular, uh, they let's let's hit some buzzwords because there are some buzzwords flying around, and uh, I'm going to ask a question from a uh, uh, read, uh, reader, Shwarab. Um, ask him why does he think their report is being mischaracterized by Indian media as quote no Aryan invasion unquote, and stuff. Is there real political pressure on either their study or the co-authors, which he knows of? Uh, is, according to him, people in his field in South Asia have soft Hindu nationalist tendencies, which he knows of, and that's why they're giving states to them, statements in the media while perhaps saying the opposite in private? Um, it's time that we at least understand if there are genuine pressures or leaner, leanings or it's just being on the safe side since we don't know enough. Now, before you respond, if you want to, Vagish, uh, I do want to just point out uh, there has been a lot of uh, reporting and journalists in India have been contacting me about whether this checks out. Like, There's a lot of co-authors um, in science. Co-authors don't always agree on everything. Um, in general, they agree on the big findings and people will pull themselves off of papers if they think that the first, you know, the lead Authors are coming to conclusions that people don't agree with, but um, you know we we don't necessarily expect total unanimity, and so you know Vagish only speaks for himself, obviously, even if he's the first author. So 
Um, what do you what do you think about that question? Like, do you want to answer that? Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, I don't think there's any political pressure on us reporting any of the data. Um, we publish the papers openly. So anyone can read uh, what we actually wrote in any of the papers. And the data is also available. So we can they can directly check whether we did things right or didn't. Um, and all the co-authors, including myself, were highly aware of that. Um, and so the papers are out there. That's the first thing I want to say. And um, we're very explicit in the various interpretations of our data and what it means in terms of the spread of language or the spread of farming and changes in ancestry types. So, uh, you know, there's no sort of... Um, sort of teasing apart that in any other way other than saying that what's in the paper is what at least I believe. And I think our co-authors also support our statements in in those papers. So what could be misled in the media um, in trying to understand this? Um, it just could be a misunderstanding. So in, in this paper in Cell, in the report of the Rocky Gari individual, we state that um, one, the Indus Valley individual is the primary source of ancestry for all later South Asians, which is true. The second thing we say is that they were highly divergent from farming populations and hunter-gatherer populations in Western Iran, uh, which I think is also true. And so this lends to a sort of uh, a, an interpretation of the world in the genetics of South Asia to think that they're highly divergent from all other populations from Central and South Asia. But this is true only up to that time period. And so what that paper really doesn't discuss is thereafter, uh, there's movement into South Asia, which um, sort of has significant impact on the demographics of that part of the world. And that's sort of discussed in our science paper, in which pretty much all the same people are also co-authors on. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, like sticking to... Uh the hot button issues, I guess, um, Aryan invasion, thumbs up or thumbs down? Well, I think definitely thumbs down in terms of what it means to be an invasion. And also, again, the, the, the question about what Aryan means, um, I think needs to be dissected a little bit. I think people, um, we, we talk about it in these blanket terms of entire cultures being transformed or arriving from one place to another, but not enough uh, thought is given into what that word really means and whether it's a cultural term, whether it's a linguistic term, whether it's a term to do with ancestry shifts, uh, I think is not very clear and needs to be unpacked. So if you look at the genetics of South Asia, um, it's abundantly clear that a maximum of about 30% of the ancestry of South Asia comes from steppe pastoralists uh, who spread, whose ancestry spread from the Pontic Caspian steppe um, into both Europe and South Asia. And actually, the, pro the proportion of their ancestry in Europe is significantly higher than it is in South Asia. And the process by which they moved in, in terms of, you know, the ratio of males to females and male bias and the admixture and so on, um, happens to a much higher extent in Europe than South Asia. And the second thing to realize, and that we try and highlight in our science paper, is that the process of this movement takes multiple thousands of years and involves admixture all along the all along the way in which they finally arrive to the peripheries of um, South Asia and Europe, and so and and the third aspect of this is whether there are cultural transformations that occur on the ground that that are visible directly uh, in the archaeological record. And in both cases, both Europe and South Asia, 
I think one would argue that there's very little cultural transformation that's happening and that these these individuals take an example in Europe in the Balbiker culture where the same sort of type of ancestry moves from the steppe into, into Eastern Europe and Central Europe. Um, the archaeological culture these individuals are identified with uh, at least appear to be from Western Europe. So these individuals, even though they're 70% of one type of ancestry and they're arriving and there's massive male bias in this admixture event, the actual culture that's visible on the ground uh, resembles that of local populations in Central and Western Europe. And I think similar things are also true in South Asia with the movement of these steppe pastoralists into that part of the world. Uh, and they're adopting local cultural attitudes and practices. And the evidence for this is that there's very little change uh, between the Harappan period and post-Harappan period um, in the archaeological context and the type of food and grains and crops that are being grown and so on and so forth. Um, and so what it means to have this transformation happen genetically, linguistically, and culturally is a bit complex. And I think, you know, I think the, the, the public uh, is capable of understanding that nuance. Um, and I thought we tried to convey this in the paper to the best extent possible. Yeah, let me, uh, let me ask a few follow-up questions from my, my interest. And, you know, I do want to say to listeners, uh, you know, if you, if you're a, tech nerd, that type of person, all the data um, is available, or most of it. I mean, I'm sure you guys have some that are maybe Simon's related that are not. But, uh, you know, it's all the data that we're talking, the, the, the conversations we're having here are from data that is publicly available. You can do the reanalysis yourself. Um, you know, I, I'm having Vagish on because obviously he knows this better than anybody else. But he is fallible. We're all fallible. This is a process of learning and understanding. It's happening really fast. There's a lot of data. There's a lot of results to interpret. I think if we just have goodwill and good faith, we'll we'll get there to understanding the past better. And so this is why I love this discussion. And you know, I'm okay with people disagreeing on things, partly for that reason, as long as you have good faith, right? So um, I'm curious. When you said 30%, the question that I have is. Uh, Okay, so, you know, I'm looking at these charts and there's a certain amount of ancestry, like let's assume step equals Santoshta. Okay, is that, yeah. can I say that? Sure. Yeah, okay, so like that that's step, right? So that's like the 100%. By the time that these um, Vedic people, I'm going to use that word, the people that are depicted in the Vedas, uh, these agro-pastoralists, arrive, you know, in say like the Punjab, um, one of the things that, I wonder, and I'm not entirely clear from the paper, and there's been discussions online about it, is, like, I mean, can we even assume that they would be 100% step at that point? Because in the paper, you do indicate that there was no admixture from the BMAC, back to Margiana culture. Right. But, um, you know, they're not 100% Santoshta when they come into, like, let's say the Punjab, right? I mean, like, what would you say to that? So as far as we see, so they're definitely not 100% because we definitely see admixture that's happening on the steppe. So on the southern steppe in, in sort of northeast Kazakhstan, we see samples that are different in ancestry from those, uh, say, in Eastern Europe um, or on the steppe. And 
they're about 10% different because there's local admixture with groups that existed there uh, prior to the arrival of these individuals. And so they're definitely not 100%, but they're, you know, quite close to that. The second thing we see is that we don't see any admixture from the BMAC uh, with these individuals, sort of leading to a, a mixed population that then moves into South Asia. So somehow they're filtering through these BMAC cities without um, actually, without substantial amounts of mixture. However, this doesn't mean that there's no mixture in sort of the peripheries or Northwest South Asia uh, with a different population group. And so this 30% actually refers to the maximal proportion of step pastoralist ancestry that you, you could possibly have by extending the Indian cline to its maximum extent, to a portion of the Indian cline which has actually no Andamanese hunter-gatherer related ancestry. So while we say that there's a maximum of 30%, um, in most population groups in India today, there's a substantially lower proportion um, of step pastoralist ancestry. Yeah, so I'm seeing in your in your results, uh, I'm seeing say like five percent in ready populations from UP, maybe right. like 15 percent from uh, non Brahmin, non Kshatriya people in the Gangetic Plain, maybe a little higher here and there, higher in the Punjab. Like that's about right, right? Exactly right. So yeah. this is an interesting point. So we actually know very little about the dynamics of Iron Age South Asia. And if anything, we see that in the SPGT samples, so these are a thousand year thousand BC samples from the Swat Valley of northernmost Pakistan. So these are based geographically at least as close as you can get to Central Asia um, in in South Asia. And we see two interesting things. One is that the proportion of steppe pastoralist ancestry in those samples is relatively low compared to where they actually lie on the Indian climb. And the second is we see a female biased uh, incursion of that particular ancestry type into, that, into those populations. So it could have been that in South Asia, in the Iron Age, there are various groups which have different proportions of steppe pastoralist ancestry. And later, when we have the, in the early state period or the early Vedic period or whatever you want to call it, post-Harappan period, um, there are actually states uh, where the lingua franca or whatever you want to call it, the, the, religion, the language of that state um, is an Indo-European language. And then the spread of that statedom or kingdom or whatever you want to call it results in the spread of this language family into all other parts uh, of South Asia that we observe where these languages are spoken today. So the dynamics of that process is still not well known. Uh, even in Europe, we don't know very much about it. And in fact, where we do have attested Indo-European and non-Indo-European languages in Europe, it seems like the spread of the Roman Empire is what's responsible for uh, the spread of Indo-European languages, for example, into Iberia and, and France, um, and where there's a huge shift um, uh, or the, the spread of Italic languages happens because of that process in later. Uh -huh. So, so it's, so I think the dynamics of the process is still waiting to be discovered. And I hope that we'll get more samples from post Harappan periods in South Asia to sort of decipher what's going on. Yeah. Uh, just to reiterate for listeners, you know, when you read the paper, especially the science paper, because it's got the large sample size and it's talking about these dynamics, you know, um, there's this naive model of like some admixture between ancestral North Indians and ancestral South Indians that we start out with. 
10 years ago, I have to say, uh, Vagish, like I, I had emails with Nick Patterson. I'm like, bro, like, you know, I've done some analysis of the data that you guys released and I, and I'm like, there's no way that it's like a simple two way. And like, you know, Nick was, a, was like, well, we, we, we must start, we must start with something, start with a model. You know, he was, he was trying to be reasonable about it. It's like, you know, this is where you're starting. Right. But, um, it was already obvious in 2010. So you this idea of like this Iranian, the IVC client and the step client, yeah. we knew that. Okay. Like we didn't know it as rigorously as you. Mm-hmm. But I can tell you, like, there were discussions in 2010 among genome bloggers. I started looking at the data, and I was just like, no, this is – there's, like, different clines in here. There was a cline of Indo-Aryan, especially upper caste individuals, that are, that are like, too much like Northeastern Europeans, like this Northeastern European cluster, and then other individuals that were, like, Armenians and Georgians. And so when I saw, I, I think in um, the farming paper, in the supplements, mm-hmm. uh, Lazaridis et al., I mm-hmm. saw a uh, F was it F three statistic which mm-hmm. showed the South Indians are a lot like Georgians. I was like, bingo, that's exactly what I saw many years ago. Oh, I see. Right? And so, um, you know, a lot of what you're saying, I have to say, is is uh, totally unsurprising to me. Um, the surprising part, for example, is the BMAC. I assume there would be admixture from there. Me too. Right? That's what you we know? all thought, but like we weren't able to fit them into this admixture model in any way, and we've tried. Um, we've tried to use them as sources in many ways. And the, the problem is that or that the Anatolian farmer-related ancestry in South Asia is actually quite minimal. And there's only a maximal amount of that, that is, that's possible to be squeezed in into, onto this cline. And so if we, and we believe that all of that ancestry comes from, as a component of the steppe pastoralist ancestry that must exist in South Asia, at least based on the modern samples that we have access to. So the BMAC actually has a very high proportion of this Anatolian farmer-related ancestry, and using them in any way as a source increases uh, that proportion in South Asia to a point where it's no longer feasible for them to be source populations. Um, But to be fair, we do have the right source population now, which is this IVC cline. So the bigger question is, how are they bypassing the BMAC? I think that's still unknown, and the route that they've taken to descend into South Asia is still unknown. And it could be that there were that the BMAC are this large urban civilization or, or culture, and they're just bypassing those settlements by just going around them uh, without much mixture uh, in the main cities. So I, you know, I have like one question. Um, so you find about ten percent of your individuals in uh, in the um, these Iran, Pakistan, Balochistan border border zone um, is our IV our industry are they the indus periphery correct like just going off the numbers that i recall you saying yeah that's not a trivial number that's actually a significant number and yet um when i have looked at like samples and data from iran proper and mm-hmm. maybe aside from a few pashtuns there's not too much ahg in um these populations and you know um in terms of like during the islamic period um, yeah. There are records where people would talk about like, you know, cities filled with blacks, which like, you know, these these uh, Central Asians are talking about Indians here, dark skinned people. And yet I don't see any impact of that. Uh, my explanation for why this could be is there's population turnover. And, and if you have slaves in particular, bef- before the modern period in particular, slaves mm-hmm. had extremely low fertility. Uh, they were often, uh, frankly, their children, if they had any, were killed uh, by their owners because, you know, they don't 
produce any economic value. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I, you know, I, I do wonder if that's an explanation. But what do you say to that where you detect 10% of individuals that are IVC periphery, so they have some AHG, yeah. and that you don't really see that in that area too much anymore? Well, we actually see, so uh, yes and no. So we actually see that type of ancestry in the main cluster of individuals from the VMAC. Uh, which is different from the ancestry that's present just prior to the BMAC forming. So if you look um, at around 5,000 years ago um, in the exact part of the world where the BMAC culture existed, we see no evidence of HG-related ancestry, but the BMAC samples do have some of that. Uh, It's a very low percentage, but it's uh, non-zero and possibly reflects admixture from this HG-related group into that population. Uh, but maybe the, the proportion of that ancestry is low because the number of individuals from that partic- from these outlier individuals moving into the BMAC cities are much lower than the actual proportion uh, of the main cluster of samples. Okay, um, so I guess like you know another question that we have here uh, is uh, the AHG. Um, there's a lot of argument, you know, and I've talked to uh, talked to Priya about this as well. Uh, uh, you know. Basically, Andamanese, like using that terminology um, yeah. in the public public discussion, often people just substitute Andaman and Islanders as the AA, as you know the ancient ancestral South Indians, another term you use. Um, sure. But um, looking at the trees now, you guys, from what I know, have really pushed the divergence of the Andamanese from this um, AHG component back really far. Yeah. So I think that's that's what the data is showing, that the Andamanese hunter-gatherers, and we actually have ancient samples now from mainland Southeast Asia, uh, not by our lab, but from S.K. Willerslev's lab, uh, in the McCall et al. paper, which specifically discusses the relationship of the ancestry of the Andamanese hunter-gatherers, the modern-day Andamanese, the Ongi, uh, with mainland Southeast Asian uh, hunter-gatherers. So prior to the arrival of farming in Southeast Asia due to the Austronesian expansion, um, there's a type of ancestry that's present there, and the Andamanese hunter-gatherers seem to resemble that type of ancestry. And so what Razib was talking about earlier is how the very the hunter-gatherers of South Asia are related to the Andamanese hunter-gatherers, as well as individuals like the Han Chinese or uh, indigenous populations from Australia and Papua New Guinea, um, suggest that the Andamanese and the Han Chinese and the Papuans and so on, um, there it's almost a trifurcation or quadrification, whatever you call it, want to call it in, in, in the lineage. But what it refers to is that when Asia was first peopled, at least what it seems like, when Asia was first peopled, um, there was a, a radiation of different ancestry types. And this occurred almost very quickly after the out of Africa event. So within 10 or 15,000 years after the out of Africa event. And so in in these Andamanese hunter gatherers are actually only very deeply related to the source population for, of hunter gatherers uh, among South Asians today. So that's what our admixture graph models are showing. And we sort of support that hypothesis now. Yeah. So, I mean, we can't just substitute the Andamanese. I mean, one of the things that I always point out is like, when I looked at the paleoclimate and the geology, the Andaman Islands, their their mountain range extends out of you know modern day southern Myanmar. So yeah. uh, you know, there's no expect. I mean, yes, they're geopolitically part of India, but really, um, in terms of biogeography, they are part of Southeast Asia. So uh, that was totally unsurprising to me. 
um, that that came out. So here's another question. Um, we kind of alluded to this, but like I want I want to get you explicitly on the record because I think people, you know, like I mean, like you know, honestly, we've all read the paper. Well, not all, but a lot of us have read the paper and like worked with the data some. But like I mean, you've done it the most, right? So like this is why like we're asking questions of you because we're updating our priors a little bit based on you, right? So just for the listener, why I'm asking him things like this. Um, so um, what did the genetic landscape of India look like prior to the advent of agriculture? Particularly, what is the boundary between Iran-like hunter-gatherers and more Andaman-like hunter-gatherers, which are so, more indigenous to South Asia? This is an amazing question. We actually don't know. So with the, the, while we say this Iranian farmer-related ancestry in the IVC Klein is deeply diverged from the samples that we have from central and western Iran, we actually don't know where that particular ancestry type would have lived uh, in prior to the IVC sample. So it could have been that these individuals are just next door neighbors to the, the hunter-gatherers of central Iran, but they're somehow just deeply diverged and then they move east into South Asia. It's also possible that this ancestry is deeply embedded within South Asia itself and sort of makes up the hunter-gatherer populations of Northwest India, just like this ancestry, like the Andamanese hunter-gatherers, makes the hunter makes up the genetic makeup of Southwest Southeast India. Um, so it's it, th this question is unsolved, and I think ancient DNA is needed to sort of actually geolocate that particular ancestry type at a particular time. But but what we can say is that. The Iranian farmer-related ancestry only makes it into the southeast and northeast uh, uh, peripheries of, of South Asia uh, very late. So if we look at the admixture timing date in the Palir, who are a population from Tamil Nadu um, and, and a tribal population group, which incidentally have no step pastoralist ancestry, so we can actually date that admixture event fairly accurately, we find that it's actually very recent. So it's only about 110 generations at which that those two ancestries uh, are admixing in the genomes of those individuals, suggesting that the Iranian farmer-related ancestry, regardless of where it's from, is only arriving into the southernmost South Asia very, very late, so in the past 3,000 years or so. I mean, those admixture estimates, um, so I haven't, like, uh, you have better intuition of this, do those are those midpoint estimates or, or do they usually have a recency bias no, to the they're last they're a mean estimate okay but uh, you know and I, and I understand what that means so if you have subsequent if you have admixture happening over a long period of time you're just going to get the mean date um, and not get the earliest date but what we can say is that these two types of ancestries are extremely divergent from each other so it's possible to get a very precise date on that so uh, while it refers to a mean date, and that's the interpretation, the, the estimate is actually quite precise. Um, okay. All right. Okay, so we have a situation where you are quite confident, and I think, you know, like uh, your co-author Priya Murjani, I've, I've talked to her about this too, and she was quite confident too when I talked to her a couple of years ago, or yeah. a year and a half ago, I don't know, um, that, you know, like, say three to 4,000 years ago, there's unadmixed populations that do not exist anymore, maybe outside. Like if you want to consider the Andaman Islanders Indian, but we've already had this discussion where that's a little weird to say right. at this point, genetically at least. Um, you know, there were these unadmixed populations. And so there was like this great mixing that happened between 2000 BC and, you know, into the historic era, right? Like and you're seeing this in the SWAT, the SWAT Valley samples, correct? Yeah, exactly. 
And so can you talk, uh, you alluded to it. Can you talk just like really quickly? Cause like this is a pretty intense, that's an awesome transect you have uh, from the SWAT, the SWAT river Valley. Can you talk about like the timing and what you saw? And there were a couple of outlier individuals, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So actually, you know, I think the SWAT Valley, we, we should have devoted more time to specifically discuss the genetics of those samples. So they're extremely interesting for a bunch of reasons. So one is that they're, uh, outside from the sample from Rocky Gari, they're the oldest samples ever recovered from South Asia. They're part of a very interesting culture called the Gandhara grave culture, uh, which almost uniquely in that period in South Asia buried uh, their dead, uh, as opposed to cremating their dead, which is likely the more common uh, process by which um, sort of funerary culture at that time, the funerary culture, at, the predominant funerary culture at that time was. The other interesting thing is that the time transect that we have in SWAT ranges from about 1000 BC um, to historical times, so almost about 500 years ago. So we were able to observe various cultures that have been attested in the historical record, uh, ranging from these early Iron Age cultures to the Buddhist, uh, to Buddhist cultures, uh, to the Indo-Greek period, a period referring to contact between Greece or the civilizations of Greece and South Asia and um, the Buddhist period and the early Islamic period. And so we have a time transect uh, of individuals from a particular space um, through various cultural transformations that are happening. And so we're seeing multiple things. The first is the formation of the early Iron Age cultures of SWAT uh, are clearly a, are a mixture between samples on the Indus periphery Klein or Indus Valley Klein and steppe pastoralists. Uh, though the admixture into those samples is female biased, which is, I think, also very interesting. And people think that this is probably due to matrilocal, uh, the matrilocal nature of that culture and, and, and of that culture. The second thing that um, we see is after 1000 BC, both the steppe the ancestry, both the steppe pastoralist and the Andamanese hunter-gatherer ancestry increases in that part of the world um, after 1000 BC, suggesting that there are people outside of that part of South Asia who have more of both of these types of ancestry and are arriving into that part of the world uh, at later times. So it's telling you something about how the ancestry of other parts of South Asia must have looked like uh in those later time periods even though we don't have data from from those locations the third thing we're seeing are samples from the early islamic period where we see individuals who appear to be uh, descent, who, who appear to have a type of ancestry that's not very prevalent in modern day south asians today which is a lot of anatolian farmer related ancestry suggesting that these individuals are likely have admixture from people of central asia in much later times um, so we're seeing all of these three things happening in that time transect. And I think it's very interesting and sort of we should have devoted more time uh, or, or space to it in the papers where we didn't get to because of space constraints. Yeah. And, you know, I will say one thing is I noticed some of the same patterns, obviously, when you, your preprint came out. Um, yeah. And uh, I think here's my interpretation of what's going on. Um, mm -hmm. I think that this was probably a non-Indo-European uh, society, and that's why their their um, their funerary practices were so distinct. 
because we do have a non-Indo-European linguistic isolate not that far away, the Barucho people, right? And so um, I think that that's that's what you're seeing, and that's why R1A. Um, I mean, is, yeah, yeah, did I pronounce it wrong? Well, no, Barucho and Brahui, I think, are different. Yeah, Brahui is Dravidian. I'm not talking about Brahui. I'm talking about Barucho. I see. Which is which is in northern Pakistan, right? Yeah, and that's sure. where the, that's where the SWAT is. And yeah. um, if you look at like I think I, I think I've looked at like the Barucho um, uniparental lineages. I mean, they look more like what you have found, I think, in the IVC populations. So I think that um, basically the Swap Valley that's going to be isolated. If you yeah. have intrusive Indo Aryans coming from elsewhere. It will be this mountainous region will be a redoubt of, you know, like earlier type of culture or a different type of culture for longer. And so that's why I think you're seeing both AHG and STEP increasing because in in South Asia proper, like, you know, outside of the valley zone, I think you're having like a huge admixture event. Basically, I mean, you know, in genetics, we would just say an admixture event, but like there's just some sort of cultural expansion and mixture. Right. And eventually that backflowed into the Swat Valley as it became Indo-Europeanized. That's my interpretation. I think I'd agree with you. Um, But I, uh, yeah, but I think we need more data to actually say, make that statement. Um, Yeah. And so, you know, I want to talk about uniparentals a little bit because there's been some questions about it. And I guess I'm going to have have to talk about the most awesome Y haplogroup group of all, right? Like we know what we're talking about here. But uh, <laughs> uh, there's some questions related to uniparentals. Um, I do want to say, like, I looked at your, uh, you have a great table with mtDNA and Y showing, you know, um, and you have like a Tableau data data visualizer that people, mm-hmm. I, I'll have all these links in the show notes, you know? But um, so you're talking about like uh, male mediated migration and stuff like this. And I know that uh, from my personal communication, some people in the right lab are somewhat skeptical of using X chromosome analyses uh, to figure this out. But yeah. um, I was looking at the mtDNA. It looked like there's a pretty huge rupture of mtDNA from the steppe into South Asia. Like I don't see too many of those that are like, you know, we both know that most like the majority of South Asians, you know, something like 75% are haplogroup M, um, a, a version of M that's probably indigenous to South Asia. And sure. then um, there's others, like there's like U2. So I'm U2B, by the way. Interesting. Yeah. So I, just for the listeners out there, the, the Rocky Gari sample, she's U2B. So um, in any case, like, so U2, U2B is, is very common as well. Um, so I, I'm just saying, like, it looks like to me, like, the mitochondrial lineages did not transfer, that there was like a great, there was a conceiving process somewhere along the way. Like, I mean, am I wrong in that? Or like, I mean, what do you think about that? Well, so we actually did look at the mtDNA and the Y chromosomes um, from the step. And it's with the mtDNA, it's actually more difficult to tell because it's it's tricky to figure out whether the mtDNA is actually from South Asia or from Central Asia or from the step or uh, because they're, they're shared. A, a lot of them are shared. And it's difficult to tell if there's a dominant haplogroup amongst the step populations uh, which later then descend into South Asia. So we didn't actually try to make most of our inferences uh, from the mtDNA. But from the Y chromosomes, I think the evidence is clear that the R1A Y chromosome, which is associated with Indo-Europeans, uh, both in Iran and South Asia, that comes from the step. And the third thing I wanted to talk about is this thing you mentioned about not using the X chromosome estimates to understand sex bias. So what you're alluding to is examining what the proportion of ancestry is 
on the X chromosome from a from the step pastoralists, say in South Asia, in comparison to what their proportion is on the autosomes, the non the non sex chromosomes. And so, in theory, this should give you a very reasonable estimate of the sex bias. However, the X chromosome data that we have um, is not sufficient in terms of coverage to provide a reasonable estimate of uh, the the ratio. So, the standard errors are so large that it basically overlaps with what we're observing in the autosomal estimates, especially when the sex bias is not strong enough. So it depends on how strong the sex bias is. In South Asia, it's not as strong as, say, it would be in Europe. Um, and so we're not able to use that to provide a reasonable estimate. And so what we do instead is to look at the proportion of Y chromosomes that come that we know surely come from a particular lineage. Uh, that, and that's associated with the autosomal DNA. And we compare that to the autosomal proportion to understand what the sex bias is in South Asia. Yeah, so we got to talk about R1A. Um, there's going to be some, like, you know, heathens out there that don't know what R1A is. So I'll just, like, quick summary. Um, basically, it is a Y chromosome haplogroup, which was a... Um, it's it, it spans you know Eastern Europe. It's in, it's in some frequencies in Western Europe, but it's really high frequencies in Eastern Europe, Poland, Russia. It's modal, you know, on the order of say like twenty percent of South Asians also have it. It's found in Eastern Iran, among Afghans in Central Asia. Um, it seems to be associated with, uh, in particular, Balto Slavic and Indo Iranian speaking populations, right? And um, yeah. it is the brother lineage to R1B, which is found in Western Europe. And when you do the time transect on the step, the Yamna people tend to be R1B. And then some successor cultures like Corded Ware and Satashta tend to be R1A. There's also some R1A in the Altai. Um, in India, this is an unfortunate term, but they call it the Aryan gene. Um, you know, so <laughs> there's been a lot of like coverage of R1A in India. And uh, I guess like, Okay, so Niraj Rai just did an interview that I listened to, and I've talked to others uh, for years. Supposedly, there's a paper coming out of India um, where they have all these R1A samples. And so the R1A, that's really common in Asia. So, you know, south and east of, say, the Urals. But this mm -hmm. is found in the Santashta people and also the Shrubna culture, the Volga, you know, 38, you know, 1800 BC is R1A, you know, a, you know, Z93. Okay, that's the one we're talking about. It's not the the Slavic branch. So um, that's what is generally found in South Asia. It's, it's my haplogroup. Um, and so um, they claim that it R1A is, they have data showing genetic diversity. And uh, Niraj Rai was speaking in Hindi part of the time in the interview I listened to. So I have a hard time like totally being sure he, this is what he said, but it sounds like genetic diversity in this phylogeny indicates that they think that India is the home of R1A and the theory they're making is that um, it came in through Southeast Asia. The um, K2B2, I think is the parent that's basal. And I don't want to get too nerdy about this. It came from like R and Q came from somewhere probably in Southeast Asia, really deep in the Pleistocene. How it arrived in India though is under debate. What do you think about all this? Cause like it's probably too much R talk, but you know, that is what it is. Well, so I think there's two things here. So where it comes very deep prior to R1A even, um, I think we don't have any data to understand that yet. Maybe these, maybe this paper that will come out may sort of disambiguate that. But I think where R1A and R1A Z93 specifically, which is the predominant 
uh, branch of the R1A phylogeny that's present in South Asia today comes from is clear. It comes from steppe pastoralists who move into South Asia in the Bronze Age. And uh, I, I think there's no ambiguity there. We have hundreds and hundreds of samples from the BMAC and related cultures in Central Asia. We also now have these, have these Indus periphery individuals. And we also have information from the actual uh, Y-chromosome phylogeny itself suggesting a massive radiation of this ancestry type in the Bronze Age, um, the R1A in, in South Asia and R1B in Europe. And all of these pieces of evidence suggest that steppe pastoralists moved into Central and South Asia uh, for, from the Pontic Caspian steppe in the Bronze Age, and later those lineages expanded greatly uh, in the subsequent millennia after. And so while it may be true that the most diversity of this R1A lineage exists in South Asia, it's probably due to expansion within South Asia, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that lineage uh, arises from South Asia and, and, and then expanded to other parts of the world. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, show me the shape of the phylogeny and then we can talk. I mean, until then, it's all... It's all commentary and speculation. That's my attitude. Uh, I like, like I said, I've been hearing that this paper is going to be out for many years, and so I'll just, I'll believe it when I see it. Um, when you said Bronze Age, could you just tell the listener the date of when you believe R1A shows up in South Asia? Yeah, so we think it, R1A shows up with the arrival of steppe pastoralist ancestry. So we only have two samples from the Swat Valley, uh, which are R1A, because that the admixture into that particular population group was female biased. But um, we can estimate the admixture timing of when that particular ancestry arrived in South Asia, and we believe that to be between 2000 to 1500 BC. Of course, um, the the Swat Valley populations from the Iron Age are, uh, may not reflect the actual timing of admixture in the rest of South Asia on the, and on the South Asian Cline, and we try and estimate that as well. And we get a sort of consistent date doing that. But I think we actually need Iron Age samples from peninsular South Asia and from lowland South Asia to basically get a very precise estimate on when steppe pastoralist ancestry arrived there. We have different you know, circumstantial evidence. We're using the Swat Valley and we're dating the admixture evidence there. We're looking at, at what time periods we observe steppe pastoralist ancestry on the peripheries of South Asia, say in Turkmenistan and, and Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and so on. But um, specifically, when it arrives in the geopolitical boundaries of present-day South Asia, and thereafter, how does that ancestry spread within South Asia, and you know how it makes this large-scale impact uh, all across at least north, north, uh, northwest South Asia today is sort of unknown, and we need more data to sort of look at the dynamics of that. Yeah, I'm going to ask you a nerdy question, just because like some of these questions are really nerdy, but I don't know if you have an opinion on this. But I am kind of curious. The so Y-DNA in the SWAT looks a little weird to me. Not weird in like a bad way, but just unfamiliar. So one huh. questioner is saying Y-DNA, I2, A2, 1B, 1B1. So I2 is generally found in Southeast Europe, right? As well yep. as um, EY31911, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. They seem kind of European-like. Um, and he says that this guy, Helio, says... There was one that was found in the Central Asia Saka outlier from Damgard study, sample DA19. Um, do, do you think that these came, came along with R1A is what he's asking? So it's tricky to know because, the, for example, if you look at the steppe pastoralist 
samples that are currently available in the ancient DNA data, they're virtually all R1A and R1B with very, very little uh, I2 or any other lineage that's present there. So one thing that could be happening is that only males of a particular lineage from that population are buried in these corgons that we have access to. However, this doesn't mean that the entire population has to have that one Y chromosome haplogroup. It doesn't have to. Um, and mixtures could have happened in weird ways where maybe 5% of the population is of one type and we just haven't sampled it because our sampling is uneven. We keep sampling the same type of Y chromosome haplogroup. So I, I think that, you know, it could be that these are from the steppe. It's not likely to be from South Asia because we have quite a number of samples now from Central Asia and uh, sort of sort of separating both Europe. So the samples that we have from Central Asia are sort of form a, a barrier in a way, uh, separating the samples from South Asia and Europe. And so it's unlikely that, um, it's un so it's unlikely that the same haplogroup arose in two different lineages, two different parts of the world independently. So the fact that we see it suggests that these are coming from possibly the Anatolian farmer-related mixture or European farmer-related mixture uh, in the steppe MLBA samples in Sintashta and so and, and groups like that. Okay. Um, so, you know, this is going to be an easy question, I guess, um, or easy-ish. Some people are curious about uh, the what you believe the physical appearance of um, the steppe people or the original Indo-Aryans that came into South Asia would be. You do have some phenotypic snips that I saw. Uh, I don't know if it was in the supplements or not, but, you know, I saw some phenotypic slips, snips. I didn't see SLC24A5. Is there a reason for that? Did I miss that? No, I, I, it should be there. If it's not, maybe I'll... Okay. Anyway, I'll, I'll go. It should be there. Okay. So we, I, you know, I actually looked at that recently, and it, you, you see something very interesting. So SLC 24, 24A5, uh, 45A2, is that what you want? Or, oh, no, 45A2 is different. I did see 45A2. So 24A5 is the one that's almost fixed in Europe, and um, 45A2 is the one that shows the north-south European cline, and it is like it's major frequency, but it's like not as common outside of Europe. I see. Yeah. Uh, so, so I yeah. So, I mean, I could pull the data and look at myself anyway. But um, just give me a general sense. Like, what do you think about like the pigmentation? Like, I know there's issues. Like, there are serious issues with just like doing pigmentation high respects predictions on ancient samples. But these individuals are not that ancient and that exotic. So, could you make a general like ballpark figure of like what you think that they look like? Because I think people are curious, and we can talk about why they're curious after you give me yours. Yeah. Sure. So, like. I think that step pastoralists are sort. I, I don't even know how to describe like skin color pigmentation on a gradient. Whether oh South know, Asians, you know. South Asians have plenty of words for that, bro. <laughs> whether you, you know you want to talk about them as dark or or, or light, weed, are, they, are they weedish? Are they weedish? Possibly not. They're probably whiter than weedish. I think just based on the. SLC forty five A two allele frequencies in those populations. Well, what's the what's the SLC? What what it, actually like off the top of my head? I don't remember what what you saw in the Sintashta. What are they? I think they're about fifty to sixty percent. So they're uh, they're a little darker than Northern Europeans. Northern Europeans right. are like ninety ish. Southern Europeans are actually Southern European. Yeah, Southern Europeans are Sardinians were the lowest that I remember. Yeah. Okay, so they they would they would be swarthy. 
but white is what it sounds like then. Yeah, I, I'd agree with you there. Okay. And so the reason why this matters is um, there's stuff in the in the Vedas. Like, have you read the Rig Veda? Like, I know, I mean, do you know Sanskrit? I don't know your I don't know your background. We talk about no. genetics, so. Okay. Um, so like, let me tell you, like, my background, which I don't have much of, but I, I've read some of this stuff in translation. I'm reading the Mahabharata right now. Yeah, front to back. Um, so there's stuff in there where it's like, okay, like, I don't know Sanskrit. People translate things in different ways, and there are certain interpretations that are like, oh, these populations, like, look physically different. And then there's other interpretations where it's all a metaphor, and I don't know what's a metaphor or not. Um, there are certain things where it's like if you read Greek mythology, there's a lot of description of like blonde and red-haired people. Mm-hmm. And then like now we have ancient DNA thanks to in part to the Reich Lab, you know, like with Lazaridis et al., like Mycenaean paper. Like they looked just like – well, they right. were a little darker than modern Greeks because so it looks like there's some Slavic gene flow. But that's a, that's a separate issue, right? So like you exactly. can't just go off the mythology to like what these people looked like. On the other hand um, – I am more of the belief now, based on the genetic data, that there were physical differences between these populations, even if they weren't like, you know, I don't know, Swedish people versus Nigerians. They weren't that extreme, but there were physical differences, and some of this probably percolated into the mythic literature, just going by the snips and what we can predict, even if those differences ameliorated over time through admixture. Yeah, exactly. So the other thing, the way to think about this is we can contrast what's happening in South Asia with what's happening in Iran. So we, we know what uh, skin pigmentation looks like in present-day Iran today, and we know what skin pigmentation looks like in present-day South Asia today. As far as I understand it, there's very little variation in Iran, but there's tremendous variation in South Asia in the north to south gradient, suggesting that it's the Andamanese hunter-gatherer-related ancestry which sort of increases along that gradient, you know, just making a gross statement here, uh, that sort of relates with the presence or absence of light pigmentation alleles um, in along the Indian cline. So it's very likely that the people of Northwest India who initially uh, might have met the steppe pastoralists coming in, they probably are very close in complexion or, or skin pigmentation, but individuals further south are not. And so this gradient of ancestry that's forming also reflects mixtures um, of, of, the, of this admixed population of steppe and Iranian farmer-related samples or samples which are, or individuals which are high in both of those West Eurasian ancestry proportions with, uh, with individuals or populations which have slightly lower West Eurasian ancestry proportion. And so that's how that gradient is forming. I, I don't know if specifically if populations like the BMAC or the Indus periphery or the Indus Valley Klein are that significantly different from steppe pastoralists in terms of their skin pigmentation alleles. Yeah, I mean, can you talk a little bit about lactase persistence? Um, just the, uh, the, you know, the haplotype from what I know is the same, same one that like rose to frequency in Europe. And it looks like that's been in, under in situ selection all over the place. It's not just through introduction and admixture. Yeah, so that's actually a very interesting question. So, and that we have a much better handle on through genetics because it's a monogenic trait, uh, the ability to process lactase after, in adulthood. And, uh, and its incidence in the ancient DNA record is also something very uh, interesting because we observe it at very, very low frequencies uh, in the Yamnaya. 
and it doesn't exist in agricultural populations either in South Asia or in Europe. And we believe that it's the step pastoralist movement into both of these regions that brings this allele uh, first into both of these places. However, it's within each of these regions independently that natural selection drives the frequency of this allele from sort of 5% to close to fixation in different parts of Europe and to very, very high frequencies in parts of South Asia. And we actually think the timing of this increase uh, happens very quickly in historical time. So if we look at the allele frequency of this mutation in the Sintashta or the late Bronze Age steppe cultures, which later moved to South Asia, it's about 5%. And in Iron Age South Asia, at least in the populations from Swat Valley, we don't even observe it at all. But in later historical times, um, it increases to about 8% in the Swat Valley. So, and, and subsequently, it's rising to about 30 or 40% in that part of the world. And we see similar signals in Europe, where in Iberia, we actually don't observe it very much in the Iron Age. But then in modern day, uh, people from Spain today, it's about 30 to 40%. And so this dramatic increase is happening in the past 1,000 or 2,000 years. And we actually don't have an explanation as to why this is happening. Clearly, people are drinking milk or processing uh, dairy-related products much prior to that, including the Neolithic. But for some reason, the selection on this variant is only happening in the historical time period. And one of the explanations for this could be technical, that in ancient DNA, we're somehow undercounting derived mutations because of a reference bias. But I don't think that can account for all of the all of what we're seeing in the rise of the frequency of this variant today. Yeah, yeah, reference bias. Let's, let's not get into reference bias. I'm curious, we've talked a lot about um, Indo-Europeans and North India and stuff. Um, so, you know, one of the questions that I have is um, there is step ancestry in some South Indian groups and not in others. So, yeah. um, so like the Puliyar, um, for example, and did you look at, um, I didn't look at the full list, like, uh, you know, there was a hypothesis that Dalits in South India are basically just tribal people that detribalized. Um, did you see any genetic difference between those two groups or are they the same? No, we actually did. I mean, we, so the, the Paliar and the Malayan, so the, these groups, which are found in the Nilgiri forests or in their surrounding regions in Southern India, these are the only groups today which don't have any step pastoralist ancestry, and virtually all others groups do. Uh, and so there are different. So, so populations in Tamil Nadu, which are not from these tribal areas, uh, do indeed have step pastoralist ancestry and are different from uh, the populations in the Neogri forest and foothills of that forest. All right, yeah. And so um, what's your hypothesis for how... Uh, um, this happened, I mean, like, for example, like, I mean, I know there are issues with statistical power, like, I want to, like, just point this out for some of the listeners, so, uh, you know, you have some South Indian Brahmin samples, and, uh, I think that there is, like, you know, when I've looked at these South Indian, when I have, I have IER samples, and when I look at them, they look, uh, like, about, like, three-four. they can be modeled as, like, three-fourths UP Brahmin, and one-fourth Nader, which is just, you know, a non-Dalit caste in Tamil Nadu. When I look at Bengali Brahmins, it's the same thing, except it's just other types of Bengalis, you know? And so I, yeah. I have a general intuition of, like, what's going on with these non, non-core non North Indian Brahmin groups, okay? But you can't, like, mm -hmm. detect um, certain things in them because of the admixture. So there are things that are happening that you're not going to be able to detect. But genetically, 
like, I mean, like, what's happening? Like, when did this step ancestry arrive? Like, I have some ideas, which I'll get into, like, maybe after you talk, but I'm curious about your opinion, because, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a surprise, maybe not as much of a surprise as no BMAC admixture, but the consistent difference between these non-tribals and the tribals, the fact that the tribals are still around, because that's kind of a big deal, I think, like, we're lucky that there's, you know, that there's, that they don't have any step ancestry. So what do you, what do you say about that? So one could be that, uh, like I said, we don't know about the dynamics of how step ancestry actually percolates into South Asia. So we see this decline happening, but maybe that's only because 3,000 years of mixing with, you know, your neighbors sort of brings everything into a decline and sort of homogenizes everybody. So there are a couple of things. So one is that it's unclear if Brahmin groups share more drift with each other than they do with other groups. We don't detect that. So in, an, in another paper, Nakatsuka et al., we actually examined IBD sharing between uh, population groups. That is, are any population groups in South Asia today very, very closely related to other population groups? And so we specifically examined Brahmin groups uh, in South Asia. And we found that other than Catholic Brahmins, or what we classify as Catholic Brahmins, so Brahmins today in Goa and other parts of the west coast of India, which are, are, are groups from the west coast of India who are today practicing Christians, but claim to have ancestry from Brahmin-related populations. Um, other than them, we, we don't see any close uh, kinship sharing between Brahmin groups from the south of India to the north of India. So what this actually means in terms of like how deep these groups are related to each other, whether it goes into the Iron Age or probably before is not known. Uh, but we can say something about the process by which um, these Brahmin groups in South India sort of arise from. And as Razib just alluded to earlier, we think it's admixture between a population that moved south uh, from the Northwest or from, from the North in general and mixed with local populations and therefore have slightly less step pastoralist ancestry than you'd expect when compared to other Brahmin groups from the North. Yeah. Um, so I looked up one of your snips. Okay. <laughs> Cause like, uh, not saying I'm obsessive, but I'm a little obsessive. Um, uh, so uh, the SLC 45A2 that you do have, um, RS28777, um, yeah. uh, in the early, uh, the EMBA, um, listeners will, who care, will know what that is, uh, 0.22, and then it goes to 0.755, then it goes to 1, and then in the South yeah. Asians, it's like, you know, below 50 um, for, I'm assuming this is like the derived allele or, some, or the major allele, I don't know. Um, exactly. Okay, so going into the 1000 Genomes browser, in Europe, it's actually at... The A allele is at 96%, and in South Asians, the A allele is at 22%. So um, it looks like the the, the Sintashta type people are in between South Asians and Europeans on that on that marker. There's probably been selection. Um, the recent Uralic paper, and I know Ian Matheson's working on this, but there looks to be like some sort of in-situ selection going on in Europe for like depigmentation within the last like 3,000 years. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, and so like, I, I yeah. And I think modern selection scans, just using modern populations, have identified that, suggesting that like this, and and they only really have power to detect things within the past three or four thousand years max. So, if not less than that, so this suggests you're right that there has been some in situ selection in Europe uh, for that allele, and the reasons why are unclear. 
Okay. So, you know, we've been talking for a while. I want to close this out and like just have like some um, answers to a few questions that have come up repeatedly. Uh, other ancient sites, other ancient DNA in India. I know that you have other interests. Um, you are on the job market. And so, you know, obviously you're going to be taking a position somewhere soon and setting up your own lab. Um, do we have like any visibility on like what's going on? I know Naraj Rai has some samples. Like what more can we know within the next couple of years? Uh, are you looking at a sample in Sri Lanka? Someone linked to some cave in Sri Lanka. So um, do you have any insight on that? So, so the answer is yes. We are looking at more samples that we have access to, particularly from the Deccan College, whom we've already co already collaborated with, um, is as part of this Rocky Gari study, and we're looking at Calcolithic or Copper Age populations from Central and Western India, as well as early megalithic sites from Southern India, and and hopefully with if we get permission from the Archaeological Survey of India and the Anthropological Survey of India, we'll be able to sample more sites from the Indus Valley Civilization uh, where the skeletons from those cultures are under their purview. But as yet, we haven't had access to that material. But we're actively working with Neeraj and Professor Shinde at Deccan College to try and get more data. And we actually haven't had much success in, in Sri Lanka. Um, and we're, we're hoping to set up collaborations there as well. But at the moment, we don't have any data from Sri Lanka. All right. Um, so, I, you know, I want to close out with uh, we have been talking a lot about the genetics and getting into the weeds. And I wanted to do that for obvious reasons, because that's what you can provide. But, you know, uh, just stepping back, like, how has this project um, and this these results, how has it your changed your view of how South Asian, Indian, you know, Hindu, whatever people have come about? So I think there's been a lot of narrative and, and decades of research in various other fields, both archaeology and linguistics and, and, and archaeobotany and so on, that have tried to get at this question. Uh, but I think reading over the genetics literature over the past 10 years, including the very first papers from our lab, from Nick Patterson and David Reich, uh, sort of are beginning to reveal what we're what we understand anecdotally about genetic differences um, already present in South Asia. So if you just take a train journey from North to South India, you'll see tremendous variation in the genetics or the, or the physical, how people look. And similarly, you see tremendous differences in how people look in the Northeast of India generally and, um, and, and things like that. So we're trying to, so the, the main, so the work we've carried out, are basically adding detail to what we observe anecdotally. Um, and I think that's been the most interesting part of this process. So we're beginning to understand what's happening in the very, very early periods. So what's happening in the Indus Valley times. And so this idea that farming arises in South Asia, not by the movement of people from the Near East, I think has been a very surprising observation and contradictory to a lot of the evidence proposed from archaeobotany. However, the other hypothesis about the spread of Indo-European languages supports a lot of the earlier uh, evidence that's been proposed about how those languages uh, appeared in South Asia and that and it had to do with movements of people. And I think our data is sort of confirming that. And so it's good to have this these two things which sort of contradict previous hypotheses and confirm previous hypotheses 
both happening in South Asia and, and sort of telling you that data really wins and that people should look at data instead of just proposing various theories without any of it. Yeah, you sound like you sound like a genomicist. So I, I have to do a follow up question because I uh, wasn't going to like talk about this, but like people keep asking me. So, you know, there's stuff like outside of the Indian context, um, you know, there's been some Hittite samples, no step ancestry in those Hittites were Indo-European, at least the Nessa ruling class, the Hatti. Um, and then we have this idea that Indo-European might have come from northern Iran through the Maikop. And, you know, it was in David's book and people are trying to like read tea leaves and do some criminology here. Like, do you have anything to say about any of this? Um, because I know it's outside the purview of South Asia, but people are curious. No, I mean, I think so. The, the main reason why I'm working on all of these topics is that I'm very interested in the Indo-European question. Uh, and I think there's a lot to say about this. So one is that the Hittite samples that were reported in the Damgard et al. paper, uh, I think the context of those samples really need to be examined and whether they're actually Hittite-associated burials or whether they're from uh, earlier periods is as yet unknown. And I think more data from Anatolia will sort of reveal that. Uh, the second question you asked or the comment you made was ha- alluded to the formation of the Yamnaya itself and whether the, the southern ancestry, whatever you want to call it, whether this Iranian farmer-related ancestry or Anatolian farmer-related ancestry, where this comes from uh, is, again, an unsolved question. And we actually don't have a very good source model for the Yamnaya. And in, and initial, when we didn't have very much data from the Caucasus and so on, a very good fit for the model for Yamnaya appeared to be Eastern hunter-gatherers and uh, farming populations from Iran, like, say, Gabi. And so our assumptions were that this ancestry appeared, which wasn't present on the steppe prior to maybe six or 7,000 years ago, was that it arrives from the south and, and probably from a population related to these Iranian farmers. And so I don't think that's wrong. I think having more data will sort of actually pinpoint where the geographic location of that is. But it's not wrong to say that they were related to a population with that type of ancestry because they could have been deeply diverged. They're just related to them. Um, so that's, again, an unknown question. But what we can say about Indo-European is the spread of late Proto-Indo-European or the spread of this ancestry or group of people into both Europe and South Asia and to parts of the Altai Mountains, and as well as past the Altai Mountains in the Tarim Basin, appears to follow uh, or mirror information that we know from historical linguistics about how shared features of these various languages um, uh, sort of apportion themselves. And the genetic evidence for how the movement of people of these steppe pastoralists moved through that landscape, coupled with the historical ling- evidence from historical linguistics about how different languages spoken in these different parts of the world were related, and some more closely related than others, sort of give you additional evidence that steppe pastoralists are the ones who are spreading Indo-European languages. As a final source of evidence, we have a contrast in South Asia as well as in the Mediterranean, where people with very low proportions of steppe ancestry are not Indo-European speakers. And um, and so coupled with all of these lines of evidence, I think we're sort of building a theory about how Indo-European could have spread in the ancient world. And that's by the movement of these steppe pastoralists from the Pontic Caspian steppe. Oh, so are you gonna? Are you gonna? I don't know. Like with your with your research program um, that you're starting up soon. Hopefully, I mean, you'll, you'll get a job somewhere. Like you know, right lab people always do. Um, but uh, 
do you have an idea where you're going to go? Like what you're going to do? Are you going to go in a different direction? Are you going to extend and expand? Like, what do you think? Yeah. So I would really like to look at evolutionary changes associated with uh, what we can observe in the ancient DNA records. So two things are happening in the field of genetics broadly. One is that more and more ancient samples are becoming available. Second is that we have information from medical genetics about the genetic basis of a huge number of traits, both anthropomorphic traits as well as medically related traits. So an interesting question to ask is whether those traits are evolving over time and whether we can detect differences through time and space um, where natural selection is shaping those traits. And so ancient DNA allows us to look at how these genomes are evolving. The second thing I'm very interested in looking at is DNA methylation, which is available from the ancient DNA record. And DNA methylation actually tells you um, about the actual age of a, of a person. By that, I mean chronological age. Is a person 20 or 30 or 40 and so on and so forth. And so this information can actually be extracted from the ancient DNA record. And we've built a clock now to sort of estimate the age of death of an individual uh, from the epigenetic information that's available from ancient DNA. And what we'd like to do with this is understand how human life expectancy changes through human history, uh, which has never been done before. And so that's going to be an important part of what I'm going to be working on in the future. All right. Um, you know, I take a lot of your time. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate you taking all the questions. Um, you know, this is the beginning, you know, as, as you just indicated, it's the beginning of a long process and a journey. And, and that's the key. Um, I don't think we have really any final results. Like some people have pushed their theories and models here and there, but you know, this is science is always changing, um, you know, converging on the truth as we know it. So, you know, we'll definitely be keeping track of you. Um, thanks for answering the questions and um, I will see you around online, bro. Yep. Thank you so much, Rizzi. Thank you for having me. Tune in next week for Brown Cat.